Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. We're continuing our celebration of 30 years of Physics World as we catch up with the science that was making the headlines 30 years ago. This month is the turn of gravitational waves. Predicted by Einstein's theory of relativity, these ripples in space-time caused by massive events like colliding neutron stars and black holes travel across space, bending and stretching the very fabric of space-time itself and planets and stars. A bit like a stone dropped into a pond, rippling across the water and the lilies. Twelve months ago, As we reported here on the Physics World Stories podcast, LIGO announced a detection of gravitational waves from colliding neutron stars, and with that opened the door to a new era of multi-messenger astronomy. Just like when the first radio telescopes were turned on, we now have another way of observing the universe. Ladies and gentlemen, we have detected gravitational waves. We did it. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We have, for the first time, seen both gravitational waves and light from the collision of two dense dead stars called neutron stars. However, to do it this time, we join forces with thousands of astronomers and many, many observatories. So we did it again, but this time we all did it. And in this episode, we'll be looking deeper into those LIGO discoveries. We'll be considering the controversy surrounding a paper from the Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen. And we'll look to the future with the European Space Agency's space-based gravitational Six, wave detector, quatre, LISA. 3, 2, 1, top, allumage et décollage de VV06. But before the first detection of gravitational waves in 2015, scientists across the world were working in the field, hopeful, if not certain, that one day they'd be discovered. With that 2015 discovery, Professor Mark Hannum, a gravitational wave scientist at the University of Cardiff, had his work changed forever. My name is Mark Hannum, and my research is on the gravitational waves that are emitted by black holes colliding which is fortuitous because uh, this has now become an exciting topic. Well, it was always exciting to me, but uh, not not to so many other people. Uh, But since we've observed gravitational waves uh, from black holes colliding, then, um, yeah, there's been a lot more interest. So that's that's fine with me. Before you detected them, what were you doing? Were you sort of doing the theoretical work on it or were you... Did you know we were going to detect them? There was a very long period before because there's been uh, development of these detectors for, you know, several decades. And before that, of course, there was the idea of building detectors to, to measure gravitational waves. This idea came in, up in the, I guess in the 70s, where it was you know, first shown, I guess, by Ray Weiss and others, that you could actually build a detector that was sensitive enough to, to pick up these really, really tiny signals. And the other thing that was shown, I guess, a little while later would be, was that a really ideal source of signal strong enough to observe would be from black holes colliding, because these are just incredibly uh, intense objects. A huge amount of mass squashed into the smallest possible area, and then you take two of these things moving incredibly quickly, you know, at fractions, significant fractions of the speed of light, and this will produce a really strong signal. And one of the things that you need to do in order to find these sources, because the signal is still very weak in the data, there's a lot of noise, just because this is such a difficult thing to, um, to measure, 
you want to know exactly what you're looking for. So the idea was that we needed to calculate what the signals from black holes colliding would look like as predicted by Einstein's theory. So we could then comb through the data and see if a signal matching that was, was in there. Uh, so in terms of predicting these things, you can do very, very long, arduous pen and paper calculations to make approximate predictions for what the signals would look like during many, many orbits of these black holes as they get closer. But when they get really close and just before they merge, these approximations become inaccurate and you have to solve Einstein's equations on a computer. And so that's what I do. I work on computer solutions of Einstein's equations, computer simulations. It wasn't until 2005 that this became possible. There were technical and mathematical and numerical issues with getting reliable, trustworthy solutions out from these simulations. And these problems were solved unexpectedly all of a sudden in 2005. And since then, we've been working very hard to perform simulations to predict what the gravitational waves would look like from a range of different configurations of binary of black holes merging. And once you've got those, because these are really expensive computer simulations, they take months on hundreds of computer cores to produce one waveform. And when we do our search in the, in the, in the data, uh, and in particular, once we've found a signal and then we want to really zoom in and find out what the properties are of the signal, right, what the masses of the black holes are, uh, what, how fast they're spinning, where the source is in the universe, then we need millions and millions of theoretical signals. So producing 10 or 20 or even 100 on a computer is just not going to cut it. So what we do is we take these signals we've produced and then we use these as input into a theoretical model. We'll come back to Mark Hannum later, but he's just one of a huge number of scientists and engineers who make up the LIGO-Virgo collaboration. There are those who work on the analysis and there are engineers, theorists and beyond the gravitational wave research there's all the astronomers who turn their telescopes towards those colliding neutron stars as pinpointed in the sky by the discovery of the gravitational waves caused by their collision. That's multi-messenger astronomy but Chris Messenger is a gravitational wave researcher at the University of Glasgow and I asked him just how many people there are in that LIGO-Virgo collaboration? It, it's in, the, I think, above 1,300 or so people globally in LIGO-Virgo collaboration spread across. I don't think we've got somebody in every continent, uh, but it's a well over 100 um, separate scientific institutions and it's growing all the time. So the major division is between the experimentalists and the data analysts. There are some other roles in between those two things, so maybe I'm being a bit unfair, but we need people to build and maintain uh, the instruments, the super sensitive uh, interferometers that we have in um, in the US, there's the two LIGO interferometers, one in Hanford, one in uh, Washington State, and one in uh, Livingston, Louisiana, so opposite sides of the North American continent. So that comprises uh, a large, very large fraction of the collaboration. And they're the people that, as I would say, are researching and building the technology that goes into these detectors. And the large pe- number of people here at Glasgow, that is their focus, uh, is te- detector technology. The other half, is looking at uh, data analysis, which is, again, now you can break data analysis up into a large number of areas because there's not just these compact binary coalescence signals that we want to look at. We've typically broken things up into four categories, those categories being compact binary coalescences, continuous gravitational waves, uh, which is what I used to work on, which is where you have a rapidly rotating neutron star 
somewhere in our galaxy um, and it has an asymmetry on it so and when when it has a, a, an asymmetry a tiny tiny lump uh, on this new a very very tiny lump on this neutron star um, it will be emitting very low amplitude but continuously emitted gravitational waves so we've yet to detect those but we're still we have a fraction of us looking for those signals then we have burst signal this is in no particular order by the way but we have uh, burst signals which are transient in nature so they're short-lived they're of, of order a second or less that we're looking for um, but we don't know what shape the waveform is we have no model no physical model for it other than the fact that we assume there are things out there we don't understand and we hope there are things out there we don't understand and that they're doing interesting exciting things that generate gravitational waves um, the real power is having multiple detectors in that case because we wouldn't be particularly confident in finding a signal that we hadn't predicted. We'd be significantly more confident if it arrived in two completely independent detectors um, looking exactly the same. Uh, and the final um, class of search is the stochastic background of gravitational waves, which itself breaks into two parts. Uh, one part is the sort of uh, super exciting part of the stochastic background, the random gravitational wave left over from the Big Bang just the analogy to um, the cosmic microwave background that you see in electromagnetic radiation. But that's less likely to be detected in the near future because it's so, so weak or it's predicted to be so, so weak. The, uh, the more likely is the astrophysical stochastic background. That is all of the astrophysical sources, all of the sources that are just out of our reach, but are, there's quite a lot of them out in the universe, but they all add up. We think they will all add up to some kind of background noise which we will soon be able to detect this sort of common background noise beneath everything else that, that, we, that we detect. And within each of those, you can keep breaking down into subcategories um, and it can just keep going down to, to, till you get to the individual. I mean, it's, it's really cutting edge research and everybody is doing something that is unique um, and quite bespoke for, for their particular re research project, PhD project or, 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 or other kind of project. So back in 2015, when that first discovery happened, the scientists were obviously hopeful for it, but in some ways it took them by surprise. Mark Hannum and his team were coding up models of black holes, and just before the detectors were turned on, they finished the first approximation of what generic black hole merger signals would look like. And it was a quite approximate model. Well, we didn't expect it to be super accurate, we just thought it captured the basic phenomenology of these systems. And so we'd finished this model and we coded it up so that people could use it in analysis. And the idea was, OK, we're not going to see anything for another couple of years. It will take a while. So people can play around with this first model, understand its properties and what you can and cannot do with it. And in the meantime, we'll make something more accurate. Uh, and then only a few weeks after we coded this up, the detector switched on and we found something. Suddenly, everyone is, uh, of course, wanting to use this model. Uh, and it was used in the, first, in the analysis of the first detection. And this was a bit hair-raising because we thought, okay, we've just made this approximate model. Um, it's now being used to measure real physics. You know, this is probably a Nobel Prize winning observation. Um, we better check if it's right. And so we spent some months producing as fast as we could a number of numerical uh, simulations around the configurations that we thought we'd observed to test if our model actually did well enough. And it, and it did. It was fine, thankfully. Um, <laughs> and, and the results were, were robust. 
you turn it on and almost immediately you detect something. I mean, statistically, that suggests that you're going to be detecting something all the time, doesn't it? Well, we, we weren't expecting something that quickly. In fact, the detectors were in an, an engineering run that week. So they, they, everything was turned on and everything was running and it was just a check it would go. And after all those last checks were done, the plan was, you know, we officially start observing. And I don't know, one or two days into that, a signal appears. And so, of course, you know panic right everyone uh, everyone's completely surprised uh, of course we were worried that there was something had that there was a mistake something had gone wrong I don't know, or, or that a fake signal had been injected which we do from time to time to test the analysis we have these sort of secret injections that no one knows about to make sure everything works and the idea of keeping them secret is to make sure that everyone actually does a an honest analysis uh, it actually turned out in this case the detectors the, the latest incarnation of the detectors was so new that no one had actually worked out how to do those injections yet. So that wasn't even an option. Um, but there were all these checks that had to be done. And, and it, it, yeah, it was a very surprising um, observation. I mean, for two reasons. One, that it came so soon, and it came immediately, and also that it was so loud. It was uh, about three times louder than our threshold for observations. And a signal like that is going to come, I don't know, one in every... I, don't, I can't remember what the numbers are. One in every 50 or so detections is going to be that loud. So it was extremely unusual. And so, of course, we were very, very, very careful to check that something hadn't gone wrong because of all those, those things. And, you know, since then, we've had more observations. Um, they've all been weaker. All the binary black hole observations have been weaker than that. But they've, you know, they've now settled down into a more uh, reasonable statistical pattern. So that really was just a very, very lucky first observation. In 2017, as we covered in last year's November episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, LIGO announced the detection of colliding neutron stars. Actually, this signal was even stronger than the binary black hole signal. Uh, and neutron star signals actually are, are going to be weaker because the, black, the neutron stars are much less massive. Um, they have to be much closer to produce a strong signal. But this signal was very close. It was you know, 10 times closer than the first binary black hole system had been. And again, we got very lucky and got a very strong signal. And then, of course, this also had an uh, electromagnetic counterpart with it that other you know, conventional telescopes, radio telescopes, X-ray telescopes could observe the electromagnetic counterpart from the two neutron stars merging. And combining that with the gravitational wave information provided a huge amount of physical information. This was also something people had been hoping for uh, with uh, gravitational wave observations. But again, it wasn't clear how soon that would come. You know, we, we, we could have had to wait five years for the first detection. We could have had to wait 10 years for the first binary neutron star with an EM counterpart, but they all came very quickly. I think, okay, one of the things you asked was, does that mean that they're very common? And, and yes, it does. I mean, the rate, there was an uncertainty in how common these events would be, which was, uh, we, we were uncertain of the rate of binary mergers to within a factor of a thousand. Okay, which is a pretty big uncertainty. Uh, and the observations we've had now in the last few years, the six confirmed detections, tell us that the rates of these mergers in the universe are, are at the higher end of our rates. The prediction, the expectation was actually that the first detections would be from neutron stars. That's what a lot of people predicted. Because we know of neutron star binaries already, those are sources that we know exist in the universe and we can make much more confident estimates of the rates of those things. So there was an expectation that those would be observed first, and that all the, a lot of the preparation was in terms of finding uh, and finding those. And so it was especially uh, exciting for me, who had had been, you know, banging on about 
black holes all this time to actually get the, the first detection. So that was really, uh, uh, really, really great. You, you've mapped what the signal is that you expect to get from colliding black holes or black holes interacting in some way that produces gravitational waves. Yeah. You then see that, and that proves to you that gravitational waves exist. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Right. Yep. What does it tell you about black holes that you didn't know before? In some way, okay, the, the, the cheap answer is actually didn't tell us anything that we didn't know before about, okay, it didn't tell us anything we didn't know about general relativity. Okay, so one of the headline statements from the detection was that Einstein was right, we've, we've tested general relativity. Well, general relativity has been tested in many other ways in the past. We have very little doubt that uh, general relativity is right. We've, we've no doubt that Einstein was a genius. Uh, that wasn't one of the things we really, really tested. Uh, okay, it could have turned out that, that general relativity in this strong field regime, right, where it had never been tested before, we'd never tested it on events as as powerful as black holes colliding. And it could have been that in that regime, something went wrong. Um, it was pretty unlikely, and of course, it, it turned out that the theory held up there. Um, so in that sense, we didn't learn new things. And I think that's very interesting because one of the motivations to build gravitational wave detectors back in the 60s, when people first thought of this, was at that time there was some doubt as to whether gravitational waves were real or whether they were just a, a sort of um, artifact of the coordinates in the theory, right? That if you did a theory, if you looked at the theory more carefully, that this, this effect would go away. Um, and there was also a question of what this meant for quant quantizing gravity and for um, all of these, these sort of deep theoretical questions. And that was one of the motivations in the 60s, in the very beginning, to try to build gravitational wave detectors. Since then, uh, we've got a much better handle on the theory, and we understand very well how gravitational waves emerge in the theory. I would say we didn't learn anything about general relativity, except that it's still, still correct. Uh, but we did learn a lot about astrophysics. We understand a lot about black holes. We, we have observational evidence for black holes, compelling observational evidence for black holes. What it did tell us, though, was uh, that there are black holes uh, out there which are much more massive than we had observed before. So previously there had been uh, inferred observations of black holes from um, X-ray binaries, and those black holes were always just a few times more massive than our sun. They weren't, that, there was a range of masses and they didn't get higher than, I don't know, 10 or 15 times the mass of our sun. The black holes that were observed in this first gravitational wave detection were 30 times the mass of our sun. So each black hole was 30 times more massive than our sun. When they merged, they produced a black hole that was uh, 60 times the mass of our sun. Okay, the actual number was 65 times it. Um, so that's much more massive than what we had observed before. And now with subsequent observations, we've observed more and more black hole binaries where the black holes are really massive. So there's this whole population of black holes that we just weren't aware of before. And of course, we'd never observed a binary before because they don't give off any electromagnetic radiation. There's no way to observe them uh, electromagnetically unless there's something else orbiting around them. So two black holes in orbit are completely invisible to conventional astronomy. And this gave us information about how uh, black holes form, what is the end state of stars, and then this information can then be fed back into you know, galaxy evolution and so on. So there's a lot of information about astrophysics that comes. Um, the other thing to say is that, yeah, with... With these black hole observations that we're now getting, because of the rates that we're, that must be astrophysical rates of these mergers, we are going to, by the time the detectors reach the design sensitivity in the early 2020s, 
we're going to have observed and measured the properties of hundreds of black holes. And over the last, I don't know, three or four decades or whatever it is, we've measured the properties of about I don't know, 60 or so neutron stars. So we've got this whole other object out there that we will have, a, have measurements of. So if, for astrophysicists, this is a, an amazing new collection of data. It's a whole new source uh, that we'll observe in numbers that are competing with other sources out there in the universe. So in the future, with more observations, what are you hoping to find out about black holes through gravitational wave research? Okay, the things that we expect to find um, are not going to be you know, quite at the, the big headline level of the first detections. But what's going to happen now is we're going to observe, from the black hole side, we're going to observe just a lot more black hole binaries and a lot more black holes. And that's just going to give us a lot more information about the populations of black holes in the universe. So how massive are they? How fast do they spin? And how fast they spin tells us about the formation mechanisms. How are the spins oriented when they merge, which also, again, tell, tells us about the, the formation mechanisms. And there are open questions now. I mean, if you look into the literature, you'll see, okay, there are these different formation scenarios and these different kinds of binaries that could be formed. And the question is, okay, which is actually more likely, which happens most often? And that's not so clear with the number of observations we have. So when we have you know, 10 observations, 20 observations, 100, all of these questions will start to be, uh, to be resolved. Um, the other thing that will be really nice and that I'll be very excited about is when the te detectors become more sensitive and we get stronger signals, then we'll be able to unambiguously and you know, categorically measure the signal that's given off from the final black hole uh, settling down. And that's as close as we get to a signal from a black hole, right? That's the, that's the ringing of the final black hole after this merger has happened. And, and as this distorted black hole that settles down into a stationary black hole, it gives off these very weak waves, which are decaying exponentially with time, but they do so in a characteristic fashion that's predicted by general relativity. But the really amazing thing here is, is this detector, right? This is the most sensitive instrument that human beings have ever constructed, and it has measured the, you know, the smallest physical effect that has ever been measured in history. And the incredible thing is not only has it measured this tiny, tiny signal, but this signal is from two black holes colliding a billion years ago. This is just an incredible piece of technology, and it didn't come out of nowhere. It's been under construction for, for decades. There have been the earlier incarnations of the detector that have been made more and more sensitive. Um, the sensitivity that was uh, planned for advanced LIGO uh, is the sensitivity that was reached. You know, if you look at a building project, you know, people, are, you know, you're building an office building that's the same as all you know, 20 other office buildings. They regularly go over budget. They go over time. This thing delivered what it said it would deliver when it said it would deliver it. LIGO has in part confirmed and in part changed our understanding of the universe. It's little surprise that the scientists from the collaboration were awarded the Nobel Prize, and the prizes haven't stopped there. Lisa Barsotti won the New Horizons Breakthrough Prize for her work on improving the sensitivity of the instrumentation which detected those gravitational waves. In the last 11 years, I've been part of LIGO. One of the things that I've done more recently is to uh, think about techniques to improve the sensitivity of gravitational wave instruments. And in particular, I use a technique which is called squeeze light and it uses quantum optics. 
to try to make these instruments even more sensitive. And I've been in the project for quite a long time. And so in the past, I've also worked on the design and commissioning of, of these instruments. The gravitational wave instruments are extremely sensitive. And uh, this means that uh, there are a lot of uh, disturbances, and we call it noises, that can mask the actual signal. To give you a sense, so what you're trying to do is to measure something of the order of 10 to the minus 18 meters over a four kilometer scale, which is the arm of this, uh, of this instrument. Um, and so if you try to appreciate that, you, you, you figure that that's a kind of an incredible, incredible small displacement that you want to measure. Um, and it turns out that the very quantum nature of light imposes a limit on this measurement. Uh, and so the uncertainties on the arrival time of photons at the main photodetectors that then encoded, encodes the gravitational wave uh, parameters. Uh, this arrival time is uh, it's called shot noise. It's pretty common in uh, tabletop experiments that works with light. Um, and, and these instruments become one of the main limitations. And so what we try to do is to manipulate light in, in a way that you overcome this limit. <laughs> it's actually way more <laughs> mysterious than that because we don't really manipulate light, but we manipulate the actual vacuum uh, state of, of, uh, of the system. So it, it gets complicated, but uh, it works. So at the end, what you do, you use a crystal and you have an optical cavity and you produce this vacuum, which you manipulated in the way you want and you inject it in the, in the interferometers. And as I say, Lisa won the New Horizons Breakthrough Prize. That was uh, really unexpected. And in this community is a bit strange when you are singled out because it's such a large effort and there are so many people involved. You know, even the winners of the Nobel Prize felt like they didn't really deserve it. So, and they did, <laughs> don't, don't, don't <laughs> take me wrong. It was really great. It was very exciting. Uh, I have never been in a Hollywood style party. And I have to say, uh, it was great. And so you're working on the, the instrumentation side of things. How does it feel then for you when you've done all that work and then they actually are used to detect gravitational waves successfully? So that was really one of the best days of my life, I have to say. So I started in this field uh, something like 17 years ago now. And at that time, you know, the, these instruments were in the construction phase. And, uh, you know, as soon as we were, were starting to operate them, the theories would change and the estimates of the rates would change. And so it seems uh, less and less likely that we would actually detect something in a short period of time. And so I kind of... Uh, let's say, dealt with this by thinking that, okay, I'm trying to build, you know, incredible instruments, uh, and then it's up to nature. It's not up to me. My job is to build the instruments. And then if nature is kind, great. 
if we don't detect anything, that would still be an important um, input for the community. It means all our models are wrong, uh, right? Uh, and then, and so I thought I was happy, let's say, uh, with this approach. I didn't think I was wasting my time. Let's put it. Uh, but then the discovery happened, and and I was like, oh wow, I was wrong. It's so much better to actually detect things. And at that point, you feel like you're contributing to something big, and you're like really contributing to increase uh, uh, human knowledge in a very deep way. And it's beyond me. It's beyond my own group. It's you know, it's a very large worldwide effort that brought us here. So it was at the beginning it was shocking. It's like, okay, now I don't have any more purpose in my professional life. It's done. Uh, and then you soon realize that, well, this is just the first. It's really just the beginning of a new way of doing astronomy and astrophysics. And what was incredible, you know, after the first announcement, February 2016, seeing the excitement, not just in the scientific community, but also in the public, that was really rewarding. The work Lisa's doing will open up the skies yet further to gravitational wave astronomers. Now, buzzing around at the time of these conversations I was having was a bit of press about a group in Copenhagen at the Niels Bohr Institute who were questioning the very discovery of gravitational waves. It seemed peculiar to me, given, apart from anything else, the number of detections that there have been of gravitational waves. It's a contentious issue. It was tempting to ignore it completely for this episode. And the scientists that I spoke to were not keen to go on record about it. This is all Lisa Barsotti had to say. Mm. Well, let, let me say this. I think as a scientist, uh, I really value the fact that you know science uh, is open and it's good when there are independent groups that try to do the same analysis and cross-check each other's results. I think that's a very good thing in general. In this particular case, uh, I mean, the LIGO and Virgo collaborations have interacted with this group before they published their paper, after they published their paper. The LIGO data are public. The, there have been a workshop to explain how to uh, analyze the data. Um, and so at this point, there isn't much more to say. Uh, I think um, we are very confident with our detection. Um, and uh, I think this is one of those cases in which it's not a democracy. It's not like all the opinions are the same like that. And all the data from the first observing run are public, all of them, right? And anyway, so that's all I want to say. Andrew Jackson is the spokesperson for the group at the Niels Bohr Institute. And when I spoke to him, he didn't hold back. We believe that they have not discovered gravitational waves at this point. We've attempted to do an independent analysis of this, and we come to some very different conclusions than they do. We, of course, watched with great excitement the, the initial press conference uh, when they announced this discovery, but we're concerned about several things. One was that uh, the masses of the neutron star, uh, of the black holes they talked about, were unusual. And the second was that they'd done their analysis by using templates, which is to say, 
these gravitational wave experiments have a very, very weak signal, and that means it's a very weak signal compared to the intrinsic noise of the system. And so they have two detectors because they want to make use of redundancy, the idea that you get the same signal but different noise uh, in, in the two detectors should enable you to, to confirm that you've got the right analysis. But in fact, they don't really compare the signals with one another. They compared them with templates from black hole mergers. And that's kind of dangerous because you can't discover anything else except for black hole mergers uh, when you use black hole merger templates. So, so they have a bit of a problem. Uh, in that a template analysis tends to be circular, which is to say, after you found your best fit, you then have to confirm that other things that could have similar waveform signals did not contribute to the event itself. Now, Lisa Barsati did talk to me about the way that they did this template analysis, and it's a little different to how Andrew Jackson's framed it, but I don't want to put that here. It does come later in the episode, but to put it here in the episode would make it seem that it was Lisa's response to Andrew, and that would be misleading to you as the listener. Mark Hannum, on the other hand, was a bit more vocal, and I told him what Andrew Jackson had said, notably that claim that they believe that gravitational waves have not yet been detected. Well, the paper that these guys wrote didn't even question the detection. It just said, we have found some artifacts of the noise that cannot be explained. That's all they said. The LIGO people came back and said, well, here's an explanation for those artifacts in the noise, and they, they didn't take that on board. Uh, so there's no claim in their paper that there's any doubt to the detection. There's no real criticism of the five sigma statistical significance of the detection. How, how can we be sure it's two binary, two black holes? It could be something else. Well, I expected after the first detection that the first thing would ha- that would happen was that all of the crackpots would come out of the woodwork with all kinds of crazy, you know, quantum this and magical that, other dimensions, whatever, all sorts of things that predict the signal that we saw, right? They would come up with some other way to, to produce that signal and say, okay, it could be this. Um, this didn't really happen. No one, no one has been able to come up with another source that would produce that signal. It looks like a, a few wiggles on a piece of paper, you would think it wouldn't be hard to cook up something that can do that, but no, there is not another physical system that people have been able to imagine that will will do the same thing. Andrew Jackson had made another claim. After we discovered these correlations, and people had gotten a little bit upset about that, uh, a rather large group of LIGO people came here to Copenhagen uh, to try to point out where we had made our mistakes. Informally in that meeting, We were told that in figure one of the initial publication in physical review letters, that the data fits, the waveforms, were done by eye, and that's a quote, to please the New York Times science correspondent. More recently, this was confirmed in a lecture at the Harvard-Smithsonian Astrophysical Center by Ray Weiss, and it has since been confirmed by LIGO members by a recent New Scientist article, that in fact, what should have been the result of careful analysis was just an eyeball uh, estimate of what was going on, and that was not stated. Right, the LIGO collaboration, you know, they have, a, I guess, a responsibility to deal with these things as, as politely and professionally and carefully as they can, 
Uh, and in some sense, this is, makes it very difficult for them because as an individual, I would like to just come out and say, look, this is wrong. These guys have made mistakes. Um, and and they are, they've made mistakes which are clear enough and clear enough certainly to people doing data analysis within LIGO. And, and now people outside LIGO have also looked at the data and it's clear enough to them that this is a result or this was a quote unquote result that was essentially ignorable, right? People, people make mistakes all the time. They do analysis, they get excited, they write a paper and there are parts of it that are either wrong, I'm not sure if there's anything wrong here, but incomplete, right? And it doesn't make a conclusion that, that holds up. And people in the field see those papers, they look at them and they say, okay, I don't have to worry about this. I can ignore this. And certainly the, the LIGO data analysis people didn't completely ignore it right? when it when they were they were sent an early draft of this paper and they took a look at it and they found um, and they found problems with it. And these guys had written earlier papers that LIGO people had found problems with and pointed out to them. Uh, but they didn't take those criticisms on board and they didn't acknowledge them. Um, so yeah, this was a paper that could have been and I think should have been ignored, but it got some publicity. And so there was a, a feeling that some kind of response was needed. And when the paper came out, and this was, a, this was 18 months ago, this first came out, uh, there was a very quick response from the LIGO collaboration. Now, I certainly, if someone had asked me, and they didn't, and they don't need to ask me, but if they had, I would have suggested, I would have said, ignore it, just get on with your work. But people were annoyed that this came out, and they spent, I think there were several people who spent a weekend working very hard to produce a response that was uh, published on Sean Carroll's blog, <laughs> going through flaws in the analysis in the paper and and, and I think politely and uh, respectfully pointing those out and, and rebutting them. And at that point, I would have thought it would have been over, but then the, the Danish group, for want of a better label, didn't acknowledge those objections. They didn't, they could have come back and said, well, you've made these objections, but we are actually correct for this reason or this reason. They didn't do that. They ignored all those things. And then they went onto the one point that hadn't been addressed in, in LIGO's response, and they, they doubled down on that instead. Which is that point? So this was also ridiculous. There's a, a figure in the um, LIGO paper, the first figure in the paper, which shows the, the data, and it shows a waveform on top of the data uh, to illustrate, look, look how well the data matches with the binary black hole waveform. And the data from the figure was published. All the figure data were, were made available for people to use, largely as part of a set of tutorials for the general public, for high school students, for other people to take a look, to, to get some understanding of what we had done. And these guys took that data and they said, oh, this must be the official, this is the analysis. We're going to take a look at this. And they subtracted that particular waveform from the data and they said, oh, there's, there's still something left over. There's some correlations between the detectors. There's something fishy going on. Well, that was an illustrative figure, and the real analysis, full-blown analysis, the search for the signals, you know, there were multiple searches. There was this template-based search that the Danish group has complained about. There was also an unmodeled search, uh, which they never seem to talk about. Then after the searches, there was parameter estimation, which is extremely computationally expensive. There's a whole host of papers that describe these in, uh, in laborious detail and make it very clear that the data published for one of the figures was not you know, the key to all of the analysis. Um, and so all of that should have been clear and uh, was misunderstood. And I think at the time, you could give them the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, they misunderstood this, that's fine. 
But 18 months later, they are still making these claims with almost no changes. So this is, it's hard to call this, uh, uh, you know, innocent misrepresentation, misunderstanding of the data at this point. I want to leave that controversy there and let you make up your own minds. As I'm sure all of you will know, in the end, the only thing that matters is the science. What I will say is that I spoke to other independent people who have checked LIGO's data and they told me that LIGO's conclusions and calculations look solid to them. The truth of it is that if you do check LIGO's data and find them to be right, no one's going to publish that, so we simply don't know how many people have done that. Should you wish to do it yourself, all the data is online. Anyway, all of this had led me to want to get a better understanding of how they actually do the detecting. I wanted to know how they decipher the signal from the gravitational waves, as small as that signal is, from the background and local noise. There are two main ways. The first one, and probably the most powerful one, is that uh, we use multiple detectors. Uh, so if you have a local source of noise in your own detector, the probability that I have the same noise exactly at the same time, and the shape of the noise is uh, exactly the same as yours, you appreciate the probability is very small because these detectors are, uh, you know, uh, thousands of miles apart. So even if you have trucks passing by, and just I'm just saying, or a storm, or uh, even an earthquake, uh, they will arrive at typically different times, and 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 they will have a different magnitudes in different places. The second way is that for sources like binary black holes or binary neutron stars, we actually know what the signals should look like. And so what we are doing is we are comparing the signal that we detect with a template uh, that we have calculated, because general relativity tells you how to calculate it. And so you can do this matching. And, and at that point, uh, you know, the probability that you have, you can actually quantify what's the probability of seeing the same thing at both sides and this thing to match exactly uh, one of the of your templates. And, and typically you get you figure out that the probability of this being a random event is very, very, very small. The gravitational rate, I mean, the displacement itself is very small, but uh, in some of the uh, detections that we made, the ratio between the signal that we detected and the noise is actually pretty large. Is you know, in some cases, it's twenty, even thirty, and so uh, you can actually, uh, from the shape of the of the signal, you can deduce the parameters of the source in the sky. Um, and so hopefully with even more sensitive detectors, the signal-to-noise ratio will increase more and more. And so we will be able to extract more and more uh, accurately the parameters of the source. And the other aspects of that is that um, the more detectors you have online, the better you can localize the source in the sky. And so we are also very excited because you know right now it's only LIGO and Virgo. But in the near future, the Japanese detector Kagra will also come online, and there are um, uh, there is the project to get the one LIGO detector in India as well. So in the future, you will actually will actually have a you know a network, much broader network of detectors all over the world uh, chasing these waves. So 
That's very exciting. And in space, right? And yes, and uh, in the next decade, Lisa, uh, I really like the name of this. Um, yes. <laughs> Lisa will uh, detect different type of sources. Uh, so it's really complementary with the ground-based detectors. And that will be very, very exciting. Lisa's excitement about ESA's Lisa is well-founded, with the forthcoming space-based gravitational wave detector having been given a major boost with the rousing success of Lisa Pathfinder, a sort of of proof-of-concept forerunner to the mission. My name is Paul McNamara, and I'm the study scientist of the Lisa mission at the European Space Agency. And prior to working on Lisa, I was the Lisa Pathfinder project scientist also at ESA. So LISA is a space-based gravitational wave uh, observatory. So it consists of three satellites, and the satellites are separated in an equilateral triangle configuration, separated by 2.5 million kilometers. And by measuring the change of the separation, we can measure gravitational waves. So it's an observatory to measure the stretching and squeezing of space-time as the gravitational waves are passing. And what's the benefit of doing that in space rather than the detectors we've got here on earth so the detectors on earth it's in a way the analogy we can use is a bit like comparing let's say infrared electromagnetic radiation against x-rays so on the ground we have gravitational waves which measure high frequency uh, waves so variations in the distance on the order of a hundredth to a thousandth of a second Whereas in space, we're looking at lower frequency gravitational waves uh, on the order of one, you know, fluctuations every 15 minutes or so. And the reason why we can't do that on Earth is just so much seismic noise on Earth that would prevent us from ever making the measurements. So the only way to look at these low frequency waves is to do it from space. I assume there's noise from the sun. Is that something you have to filter out when you're doing the measurements in space? Absolutely. You know, in principle, you could think of uh, a space-based detector as being a very simple device. You know, we we have a mirror. In our case, our mirror is a, a little cube of gold platinum. And all we have to do is measure the distance between these mirrors, which are free-floating in space. As you said, the sun is the biggest noise term. And it's actually the, the photons, the light coming from the sun, creates a pressure, so solar radiation pressure. And that would push our little mirrors out of their ideal position. So to get around that, we wrap a spacecraft around the, the mirror, uh, and then we do something called drag-free control. So we monitor the distance between the mirror and the spacecraft, and then we force the spacecraft back. So uh, essentially, the, this little cubicle platinum is the heart of the mission. There's six of them, one at the end of each arm. Uh, and the role of a spacecraft, scientifically speaking, the role of a spacecraft is to protect the cube from all external noise sources. This was considered to be impossible, because we have to keep this cube basically free of forces. If we think of forces in terms of uh, the Earth's field, G, we have to be under something that apart in 10 to the 17 of Earth's gravity, free of that sort of level of forces. So it's a very, very hard measurement to make. But we thought, well, well, let's try it. So that's what the Lisa Pathfinder mission was about. That was, could we ever build a satellite which was quiet enough uh, to allow us to position one of these little cubes in what we call inertial space. So only seeing gravity and seeing no other forces. So Lisa Pathfinder, that's a mission which we've been working on now for quite a few years. Actually, it's now over. But it consisted of two of these little gold platinum cubes uh, and uh, an interferometer measuring the distance in between them. So it's really taking one arm of Lisa, which is two and a half million kilometers, 
and shrinking it down to about 38 centimetres and putting it inside one spacecraft. The difference is that LISA Pathfinder is not a gravitational wave detector. To do that, you really need to have the millions of kilometres. So with 38 centimetres, really what we're sensitive to all the noise sources which affects LISA, but not the gravitational waves themselves. And the reason why we have two of these cubes uh, is very similar to saying, you know, if I have a very good clock, how do I know my clock is telling the right time? Well, I compare it with another very good clock. And that's the same as why we need two of these. We have one little cube floating completely free in space. The spacecraft is continually being buffeted by the, the sun. Uh, and so if we only measure the distance between the cube and the spacecraft, the only thing we'll measure there is how much the spacecraft is moving. So having another little cube sitting in spacecraft is, again, completely free with no mechanical contact to the spacecraft, then we can measure how well they're located in space. And Lisa Pathfinder was a huge success and demonstrated that, yes, we can actually build a satellite quiet enough to allow us to measure gravitational waves from space. Lisa is... It turns out that uh, on the very first day, we started our science operations. So we had a short commissioning phase where we turned on all the boxes and make sure everything's working. Then we start science. And on that very first day, we had met our requirements. So this thing worked straight out of the box, which was just phenomenal. No one expected that. And it really just shows that the design was good, but it was built to perfection. And so it was European industry, a company called Airbus in Stevenage, UK, and Airbus in Friedrichshafen in Germany, uh, plus lots of subcontractors and universities all over Europe, really built an exquisite machine. And of course, we're scientists, so we don't just sit there and, you know, rejoice in our, our success. We did decide to tweak it and make it better. Uh, and as I said, originally we thought that we would get to something close to LISA and then we could extrapolate the performance. We could measure what the noise terms are and how to improve it. We didn't have to do that because we actually surpassed what we had to do for LISA with the little instrument called LISA Pathfinder. So we're delighted with it. That's brilliant. Obviously, when you send a spacecraft out into space, you can't really go and fix it, right? You've got to get it right before you put it out there. Absolutely. And that's why you said when LISA is due to launch in 2034, why does it take from now, 2018 to 34, to build this thing and launch it? And it's simply because we have to test. We have three spacecrafts. We have to design the system. Then we have to build it. Then we have to test it. But we have to test three of them. Uh, and so it just takes time. And you want to make sure you get that bit right. You don't want to cut corners, launch it sooner, and then it fails. Because as you say, there's nothing you can do about it. LISA Pathfinder was located about 1.5 million kilometres from Earth at a point in space called uh, Lagrange point number one. But for LISA, it's in order to measure gravitational waves, you want to be as far away from the Earth-Moon system as possible because just the orbit of the Moon disturbs the measurement. So LISA will be located 20 degrees behind Earth in the Earth's orbit, which works out to be about 50 million kilometres. So there's no way we could ever send an astronaut out there to, to fix it. This is way too far away. Yeah. Do you make two of them? I mean, like, do you make six of them, if you see what I mean? Because like, there's the risk of launch. No. Uh, so what would we do is we, we obviously carry spares. So we normally have, so within each satellite, there are, there's lots of redundancy in it, but in a sense, you've got, you have a laser. The laser shines light onto an optical bench. We then have this little gold platinum cube sitting in something called the gravitational reference sensor. And then there's a telescope to send the light to the, the far end. Uh, so we will make copies and spares of all of this part. We won't actually assemble it into a spacecraft because there's no need to do that. 
but just in case anything goes wrong during the testing, we have spares which we can replace at a short notice. And is it this testing period? Does that involve any other space missions, or is it all on the ground testing from this point until the actual launch? For Lisa itself, it's all on the ground, but we have lots of other things which we can leverage off. So, for example, Lisa Pathfinder, obviously, we'll, you know, that's a lot of heritage there for the Lisa mission. That's what it's designed for. There's also a mission flying now called uh, Grace Follow-On. So, Grace Follow-On is two satellites which are orbiting a low Earth orbit, uh, and I'm not sure if you know much about these kind of geodesy missions, but it's measuring the Earth's gravitational field. And you do that by having the satellites essentially chasing each other around Earth. And as they come up towards a mountain, let's say, come towards Himalayas, the first satellite gets attracted by the mountains first, so it moves a bit further away. Uh, then the second satellite gets attracted to the mountains, and then so the distance shortens, and then it lengthens again. So basically, if you track the distance of the two satellites, you can measure the Earth's gravity field. And the original GRACE used a microwave link to measure the distance, and the GRACE follow-on has both a microwave link and a laser link. And this laser link is designed by part of the team who are designing LISA, and it's essentially uh, an exact, or not an exact, but a very similar copy to one arm of LISA. So with something like GRACE follow-on with an Earth observation mission, there's a lot of technology on that which is directly applicable to what we do on LISA. Okay. And so... Um, the reason we're, we're talking about this on this podcast right, is because Physics World is 30 years old and in the first issue of um, Physics World we were talking about gravitational wave research. We're still talking about it now and clearly we're going to be talking about it in the future and it feels like Lisa's going to be a big part of that conversation then. But what do you, what do you want to see on the front cover of Physics World in 30 years' time? You, know, you said Lisa will be a big part of it, and that, the question there is absolutely. Lisa will be the big part. It will be the gravitational wave observatory, which everyone is talking about. And I'm not just saying that because I work on it. Uh, one big difference between Lisa when it's on orbit and the ground-based gravitational wave detectors is that Lisa is signal-dominated. So there's, we know, for example, that there's objects in our own galaxy uh, called white dwarfs, and lots of these white dwarfs are in binary systems, so white dwarf binaries. And we've seen many of these things electromagnetically. And a white dwarf binary so near to the Earth, basically in our galaxy, means it's on our doorstep, they will produce gravitational waves. Uh, and there'll be millions of white dwarf binaries which we will be seeing. You know, Lisa will be observing all these things. There's so many of them, actually, that we'll end up with a, a kind of a hiss in the detector because we won't be able to separate them. We'll be able to measure something maybe 25,000 different white dwarfs. Uh, there'll be supermassive black holes merging all over the universe. If two black holes in order of a million solar masses, something similar to what's in the centre of our galaxy, if they merge, you see these beautiful Hubble pictures of galaxies merging, when the black holes merge at the centre of the galaxies, no matter where it happens in the universe, Lisa will observe it. Uh, and there's various other signals which Lisa will be observing. But Lisa is a purely signal-dominated instrument, uh, whereas in the ground-based detectors, we call them noise-dominated instruments. So they're sitting measuring noise, and then there's a transient event. So something like the, the gravitational wave of the 14th of September in 2015, GW 15.09.14. Uh, it lasted in the, it was measured in the detector for 0.2 seconds. So this thing sits there, waiting, 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 signal. Wait, 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 signal. So it's a very different ballpark. Our problem, the problem with the ground-based world is picking the signal out of the noise. The problem with LISA is separating the signals. There's so many of them. So I think in 30 years' time, what would I like to see in the front cover? 
What I would really like to see in the front cover of Physics World is the fact that we found something we hadn't predicted. Now that every time you launch or observe the universe with a new way, so yeah, you have the first X-ray telescope or you know, you've got a, a bigger optical telescope, you always see things which you hadn't expected to see. And for LIGO, the same thing happened. You know, LIGO was designed to measure neutron star mergers. The first thing it measured was two black holes. And the two black holes were the masses and the distance didn't quite fit our theories. We then had to have new theories that explain why this came to be. And what I would love is when we launch LISA, we see things which are just unpredicted. So the, the unknown unknowns, we just don't know what they are. And then we have to really dig into the data and understand what we're seeing. So I'm quite confident that we will see millions of gravitational wave signals, uh, but it's the ones which we haven't predicted. That's where the real fun is. Is it slated to launch? Do you have launch schedules that far ahead, or is it just we hope yeah. to launch? No, no, we have a launch schedule. So we are. Uh, so the European Space Agency has a program called Cosmic Vision, uh, and the Cosmic Vision mission is split into two types. You have medium missions and large missions, and LISA is the third large mission. So the, the first one, first large, is called JUICE. It's a satellite going to Ganymede, going to the Jupiter moons, icy moons. Then L2, second large mission, is Athena, which is a, a large X-ray telescope. And then L3 is LISA, it's a gravitational wave telescope. So we're slated to launch, I think, I can't remember the launch date of JUICE, about 24. Uh, Athena is about 28, and LISA is 34. Okay. And really what we want to do is we want to get LISA and Athena operational at the same time because we couldn't measure some, we can see two objects about to merge through LISA, so supermassive black holes, and then we can use Athena to do the follow-up electromagnetic uh, observations. So having both of these emissions on orbit at the same time will just revolutionise what we can do. Yeah. Multimassions are astronomy on steroids, right? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Amazing stuff. Uh, you know, just last year with uh, the neutron star merger, where multimester astronomy suddenly became a whole new way of doing astronomy. And the amount of information you can get by seeing things and gravitational wave, you can see hearing things at the same time, is phenomenal. And LISA and Athena will really be fantastic. I, I, for me, I think that LISA is just a, a whole new way of doing astronomy. And uh, we have a great opportunity here to really push it. And... We're going there. We're, we're, we're working very hard. Uh, we've got a, a consortium now, numbers about almost a thousand people from the scientific community working on this mission. So it's people enthusiastic and we're getting there. We're really pushing forward. I put that same question to Lisa Belsotti. Right now we're working both uh, in the United States, in Europe, across the world uh, on the next generation of instruments. Uh, so we want to build more sensitive instruments, like 10 times or 20 times more sensitive. And the, sensit the actual rate of sources scale with the cube of the sensitivity. So that means, you know, we want to really have access with uh, to thousands uh, more events than what uh, the current generation can do. And we want to be able to detect the signal with higher and higher signal-to-noise ratio to be able to really characterize deeply all of these sources. Uh, and so I hope that in 30 years, you know, we won't talk about the great discovery of the year. It will be a daily or hourly uh, detection of gravitational waves and uh, together with all of the other messengers, uh, lights, uh, uh, neutrinos, like all the other messengers that we have 
understand the universe would be a great synergy of all of these things together. And, uh, and that would be great. And I hope to see it. The idea of that volume of gravitational wave data coming our way may seem a fair way off at the moment, but it's increasing all the time with all the additional and improved instrumentation and detectors. It's probably only a matter of time. And some people are already planning ahead. Chris Messenger, who we heard from at the start of the podcast, is a gravitational wave researcher as part of the LIGO-Virgo collaboration based at the University of Glasgow. Chris and his team have looked to artificial intelligence for a possible solution to all that future data. It's kind of jumping on the bandwagon a little bit because we're not the first um, uh, of the sciences and certainly not the first of the astrophysics uh, sciences or areas to to sort of use this tool. I, we very much look at it, it's a, it's a tool, it's a data analysis tool. And it, with, with that said, um, I am not a computer science expert. What I'm really interested in using these tools um, uh, for doing the, the kind of science that we're interested in. And so what we, we sort of realized is that one of the sort of, one of the sort of more, more basic end results of one of these neural networks is to classify things. So where you may have some data that contains, um, that has two or more uh, classes, uh, or it can be described in two or more ways. In our particular case, we were interested in, does this data contain a signal or does it not contain a signal? You could extend that and have different types of signal, right? Uh, as the different types of classes. And we were aware that um, neural networks, and specifically in our case, convolutional neural networks, which is just a sort of special twist on how you do the neural network or some of the aspects of the neural network. Um, you can train one of these things by showing it lots and lots of examples of each of those classes um, such that once it's trained itself up so that you end up with essentially a black box that takes as an input something and will output what it thinks the class of, of the thing you've just input in it is um, based on what it's been trained on and we realized well we can just show it loads and loads of, of examples of, of data with no signal in them and we can show an equal number of examples of, of data with signals in and see how well it can perform. And some other people, as with any good idea in, in any science, there's, ne there's very rarely only one person looking at this. We had competitors or, or, or colleagues, uh, depends which way you look at this, um, all racing to do this at the same time. And, and we were not the first, but we were the first to explain this in a sort of comparing it to existing methods sort of way, because the rest of our collaboration um, whenever there's a new idea in any collaboration people are skeptical you have to you it's your responsibility to represent new results in comparison to the old results to show whether or not they're worse better the same and in this case we were, we were aiming to get things to be the same sensitivity because we know so much effort has been put into the existing data analysis techniques for LIGO and Virgo um, that they are near optimal uh, where well, you can't do too much better. And so that was our real task, to train one of these things to do as well as uh, the statistics that we were computing prior to that when we were analysing this data, the basically matched filtering, the thing I mentioned before. Um, and so we were able to show that in our paper, and so we were very... We were very pleased. And is, so is that something that's now being used? Um, it's it's not, be, not being used right now, but it's, it's the start of... 
uh, a handful of papers that are, that are coming out now um, about how to use machine learning techniques within um, within gravitational wave astronomy. I mean, again, just to be completely honest, uh, our paper was, whilst we tried to keep it as realistic as possible, there's a difference between writing a proof of principle paper uh, to writing a full, fully fledged data analysis pipeline for a major collaboration. That takes a lot of effort. And it was something that we, we we think there are people. I think there are people in the collaboration who are putting in that effort at the moment, based on our work and other people's work uh, as well. There are other aspects of machine learning that um, that are equally, if not more, exciting that can be applied to any of our data analysis problems. Uh, for example, I mentioned the parameter estimation uh, problem. Uh, the, well, not problem, but the process that we go through in trying to estimate the parameters. That's highly computationally intensive. Um, when we had the 170817 binary neutron star detection, we we had to run those codes ran for many weeks uh, on our on our computer clusters um, to produce the the final results. We would ideally like that to be a lot quicker, and uh, lots of people I know are working on trying to use aspects of machine learning to speed up components of of that that procedure. Um, my belief is that. This, this, unless uh, machine learning and uh, the the massive developments that are taking place all the time are superseded by something else uh, in the near future, this is what we'll be using as our sort of bread and butter data analysis tools in the next five, ten years, um, because it just has so much potential in terms of speed more than anything else. Um, that's the one aspect we're looking at. One of the other aspects is going back to burst searches, looking for signals that we don't quite know what we're looking for. Data mining, where that you're looking through data to find new things. That's the problem of burst searches, really, for gravitational waves, because you you've only got a few characteristics that you're looking at that it has to satisfy. What The major one being it's the same waveform uh, based in multiple detectors at roughly the same time. Uh, gravitational wave travels at the speed of light and the detectors are spread across the globe so there is you know there's tens of milliseconds delay between the arrival times of these things i think that's a real potential to use machine learning techniques from einstein's theory predicting their existence through their detection right here on earth and the promise of further detections in space with the data being sorted through by artificial intelligence for the astronomers of tomorrow Gravitational waves have become and will continue to be a vital part of the story of our universe as discovered and told by the community of astrophysicists. We're taking a break from our special 30th anniversary series next month as we bring you our regular December treat with the Physics World Book of the Year podcast, in which we'll announce the winner of the Physics World Book of the Year. But as it's the 10th time that we're awarding the prize, we'll also hear from some of the past winners as we look at some of their favourite science books just in time for your Christmas lists. Now I promised you at the end of last month's episode that we'd hear more from the team of gravitational wave researchers who've teamed up with artist Leon Trimble to create music out of gravitational wave science. I'll let them play us out again and thank you very much for listening. I'm Aaron Jones from University of Birmingham, uh, and I'm in the Institute of Gravitational Wave uh, Astronomy. So we have here a Michelson interferometer, which is a, uh, a simplified and scaled down version of a gravitational wave detector. And we've connected a Michelson interferometer to a modular synthesizer, 
which allows us to kick one of the mirrors that's connected to the interferometer and produce a percussion-like sound. This sound then causes the light waves to interfere with themselves. Then with some electronics post-processing, we're able to shift this frequency up and down and map it onto a keyboard. The keyboard sends out a pitch, which we're then able to feed into the modular synthesizer. With the modular synthesizer, we can then post-process the signal further and add in granularized gravitational wave events to make a performance art piece. Physics World.